This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we address the strike wave. Some are calling it Striketober, and in particular, the looming Yahtzee strike. We recorded this interview hours before a tentative agreement was reached for Yahtzee West Coast film and TV workers just ahead of the October 18th strike deadline when 60,000 crew members and behind-the-scenes workers were to walk off the job. Listen in. We cover the issues at stake. The members' unsustainable, inhuman work schedules, long hours with inadequate breaks and not enough pay. Conditions worsened with the switch to streaming, and the pandemic lockdown provided a short window of rest and restored family relations that normal conditions don't permit. We get the story from Crystal Hopkins, president of Ayatsi Local 871. We then look at the bigger picture of growing militancy and the October strike wave with Jacobin staff writer and labor podcaster Alex Press, who's tracked many of the strikes and campaigns now underway and whose latest article is called U.S. Workers Are in a Militant Mood. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The interview that you're going to hear was recorded with IATSE Local 871 President Crystal Hopkins just hours before a tentative agreement was reached late Saturday afternoon ahead of the October 18th strike deadline. The contract still has to be ratified by union members. Crystal Hopkins brings us the story of working conditions and demands that are at the center of the negotiations, long working hours, low wages, and not being fairly compensated for the success of streaming service content they contribute to with the Yahtzee workers recounting stories like falling asleep while driving, working 17-hour days, and being unable to take time off. We get the story from Crystal Hopkins. Very pleased to have Crystal Hopkins with us. She's the president of IATSE Local 871, and she's also an art department coordinator. And I've invited Crystal to join us today because we're in the final countdown toward the strike. If the negotiations that have been going on since earlier in the month and since the strike vote was taken, that will involve 60,000 people across the country. There's a lot to learn about this strike. And we're in the middle of, I guess, what some people are calling striketober or mini or even a major strike wave across the country. And we'll be talking about that as well. But first, Crystal Hopkins, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's just begin because I started by saying that the clock is ticking. And on October 18th, I presume at just one minute after midnight, the strike is on should negotiations not have gone any further. And so this is really the crunch time. Can you give us a sense of how these negotiations are going? Yeah, you're right. It is crunch time and it currently feels like crunch time. There have been movements. We are continuing to negotiate. I will be going back to negotiations shortly today, as soon as we're finished. You know, we are trying to do everything we can to make sure that we do get a deal and that we get the deal that that our members need. So we're going to keep at it until the clock runs out and see if we can make something happen. But in the meantime, it's been 
I would call it a slog. It's been a slog. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing. It's been a slog. Well, let's go back, Crystal. I mean, because I now you sort of given us the sense of where we are. Maybe the listeners, even though we live in you know Los Angeles, and this is a town that in some ways is dominated by the industry, not everybody knows what IATSE is and how big it is and who it is composed of. I know there are you know many many locals, so maybe you could just give us first the overview of the union itself, and then we can move into what is being negotiated. Sure. So IATSE actually is, it stands for international, which gives you an idea of how large it is. We represent the film stage theater entertainment workers across the country. Specifically, the strike is about film and television work right now, and it is affecting across the country. So California to New York, about 60,000 workers who work in film and television. Um, And that's most of the behind the scenes people, there are a few that are not IATSE, the Teamsters. We have some basic crafts that aren't IATSE, but for the most part, the crew um, is IATSE from the camera department to the construction department. And everything that happens in between those two things, makeup, hair, wardrobe, art department, which is my department. I love it. And you know everything that you end up seeing in front of the camera happens with IATSE crew. So it's actually the the vital part of the industry in every single way. So you have like, I understand in your local, maybe we could just go there before we get into what's being on the strike. Why are there hundreds of locals? How many are there? Um, In Los Angeles, there are 13 that are affected. And then throughout the country, they have, you know, LA is unique in that we split the crafts between our locals. So for example, my local 871, we represent accountants, art department coordinators, production coordinators, script supervisors, script coordinators, writers, assistants, teleprompter operators. And then we have some people in broadcast television as well. They're not under this contract, but they work in like sports broadcast stuff. So they're separated out to a different contract, but that's just my local. And then 600, for example, is the camera department. Everybody who works in the camera department and shoots the actual footage is in local 600. And then we have the sound department, 695, the boom operators, they take in the sound, they do all the stuff to capture the audio for the film. Local 44 is the property craftspersons. They build the sets, they give the actors or actresses all the things that they need to complete a scene with hand props. They dress and decorate the sets. They do special effects. So we're separated out in a way that most of the rest of the country does not a lot of them have single locals for an area called a mechanics local. So everybody will be in the same local in most of the country. Right. And is everybody negotiating for the same contract or is it one contract for the entire industry or is it per local? How does that work? So right now we actually have three expired. One is the basic agreement and that is the West Coast, generally speaking. These are kind of general terms. There's little caveats and, and weird things across the country, but On the East Coast, it's the Area Standards Agreement, and actually most of the country that's not the West Coast is the Area Standards Agreement. So the Area Standards and the Basic Agreement have, from what I understand, I'm not part of the Area Standards Agreement negotiations, relatively similar fights, if you will. We're all kind of looking at the same prize and wanting the same things. And, you know, most of it is just because working conditions have gotten so poor (laughs) over the years that there are universal problems in our industry. 
Now that you've gone into that, Crystal Hopkins, let's go over those conditions, because I think most people who know others who work in the industry know that whenever there is something that they're working on, a job, a gig, that that's going to mean 12, 14, 16 hour days that perhaps you have six days a week. I don't know, five days a week. I've never heard of. So maybe you could just give our listeners a sense of the working conditions that, you know, are now being protested or at least trying to be renegotiated. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think for people in Los Angeles, it's kind of funny. Everybody knows somebody, right? If you don't directly work in the industry, it's like, oh, but my cousin or, you know, my best friend or like everybody kind of knows somebody who's in one of these positions. It's very prevalent in our city. So there's kind of a joke that like I'm a film set wife. I've heard a lot, you know, and it's people who lose their spouse to a show, basically. You know, they never see them. They're only home to sleep. And this is a common thing at this point for people to be working so much that they have no time and no life outside of work. It's problematic, obviously, just for life in general to not have time to address anything else that it takes to live a life. And then beyond that, it's really unhealthy in any way that you can imagine, mental, physical. It's it's an unhealthy, unsustainable existence to work 12, 14 hours a day, pretty much as a standard. Like you said, sometimes six or seven days a week, not always, but many, many of the crew have been working six and seven day weeks pretty consistently. The show that I just got off of, I believe our construction department worked 76 days in a row and only had actually Labor Day off. Something like that used to be an anomaly, but it's becoming more and more common that this is the case because we have to shoot more faster in shorter timelines. The standard model of the industry used to be a pilot season, a regular season, three months off. Nobody works, right? For television, that was pretty standard. That is not the case anymore. Streaming has taken over. What our employers like to call new media, which is not new, obviously, anymore, in our opinion, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, all these services, they don't run on the model of the air dates. They dump content, people gobble it up as quickly as possible, and then they need new content. So there's sort of this demand for new stuff all the time that has trickled down, fallen down to the crews to make it happen. And so much is needed that it just has created sort of this monstrous way of working that is not sustainable. And you know, frankly, we've had enough. That's kind of where that is. I should direct the listeners to, if you want, I mean, everybody has stories, but I think that on Instagram, there has been this running sort of, what is is it called? IATSE stories? Yeah. The handle is at IA underscore stories. And it's wild to read. And people I know outside of the industry are like baffled by some of these stories. And frankly, they're normal. Nobody who works in the industry is surprised at this. So, yeah, when people read them and get these crazy reactions, it's like, oh, my God. It's like, well, I mean, that happened last Tuesday, y'all. You know, I mean, we just recently (laughs) we're in the middle of these negotiations. Right. And I have heard I haven't verified it. I don't know the person who it happened to. But a PA was driving home in the early morning hours after a 17 hour shift and got in a car accident. That happened this week. You know, that was one of the middle of this. 
Yeah, um, that was a big issue that I wanted to bring up because, you know, for those who live in Los Angeles, they know that it's hard to live near where you work. Housing is not affordable. And so many people have to live sometimes a one or two hour commute. And then on top of these, what, 14, 16 hour days and no breaks, literally, or small breaks, working, what, half hour lunch or something, that you then have to somehow have the energy to drive home. And I've heard stories of people stopping and taking a 20 minute nap, you know, in order to make sure that they can drive all the way home. And then at home, I can't even imagine you jump into bed and then what, five hours later, you're up again? Three hours later, something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's happened. Yeah, the cost of living in Los Angeles is astronomical, as people know, you know, especially in what I call Los Angeles proper, which is where most of the studios are. You know, a lot of people have commuted out and urban sprawl has sort of created this vast landscape of what is considered living in Los Angeles. And your commute can easily be an hour or two hours, easily, like everybody else is going the same place at the same time, you know? So yeah, we have the issue of the additional drive time, commuting time just to get from point A to point B. And yeah, people have slept on the side of the road. People have slept in their cars before they even left work. You just go to parking structure or wherever you're, you know, you've parked for the day. We obviously move around a lot. We shoot on locations. You never know where you're going to be. Some shooting locations are rather far away and they're commonly used. You know, if you live in Manhattan Beach and you got to drive to Pomona, that's a, a haul. So let me ask you, Crystal, because we're we're talking a lot about Los Angeles, but the working conditions seem to be the standard in the United States. Is this the standard for film and television everywhere? Are there exceptions? I've heard people, you know, use the word like, oh, French production. Does that mean something different? (laughs) So French hours are actually something that used to be used not so frequently, what it is, is basically the whole crew agrees to work without a lunch under the guise that we're all going to leave earlier, right? Instead of doing a 12 hour day, if we don't break for lunch, it's going to be a 10 hour day and we all get to go home. So French hours is something that the crew does get to vote on. The proper protocol is that the crew votes on it. And if the majority of the crew working on that particular production agrees to do it, then they can shoot French hours. You know, there are penalties if you end up working these 16-hour days on top of French hours. They're not super harsh. So (laughs) people can just imagine, you know, it's sometimes we just keep shooting and sorry, you didn't get lunch too. It's a problem. Gratefully, thankfully, the crew gets to vote on that every day. So they know that if it's a production that takes advantage of it or abuses it, hopefully the crew refuses to vote for it. And then they get to take their lunch and have a small window of breathing room throughout the day. Well, I Um, I guess this brings a couple of other questions. And that is, you know, whether or not it is the nature of the industry, or can you envision this industry running on human working hours? And you mentioned that streaming has changed the model, which everybody used to know that, you know, if you were watching TV, you got reruns in the summer, which presumably meant that the crews, you know, had their break. But now the streaming, you said the problem with it, and it's really become a phenomenon that's been exacerbated by the pandemic. And I want to ask you how that has happened. But you say that, you know, people just binge watch now. They don't just watch like one episode. You know, they watch as many as they can before they fall asleep. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, look, this could obviously be a deep conversation about our entire culture, right? And (laughs) um, (laughs) I don't think we quite have time for that, but there's an instant gratification that comes with binge watching that we used to not have. You know, when I was growing up, obviously you had to wait the whole week to get to your next episode. And for me, that was, that's part of the pleasure of it, but that's not the culture we live in right now. Everything's instantaneous. People can get a hold of people right now. That lends itself to our working conditions. I do imagine a world where we humanely and maybe at some point equitably, which is another conversation, get to get our industry to a place where it's not a badge of honor how many shoulder surgeries or knee surgeries or who worked the longest day, which was part of the culture of our industry, right? Oh my gosh, I worked a 27 hour day last week. 27, I I did 36. Like that kind of mentality was culturally appropriate within our industry. And I think we've really moved away from that. And I think the pandemic was a really big piece of that where people finally had a couple of weeks off, right? It was like, yeah, it was a terrible situation and it was not the reason that anyone would want three weeks off or four weeks off or five weeks off, whatever it was that each person had, but we had it. And simultaneous to that, not only did we have time to spend with family and taking care of ourselves and our homes and all the things, I finally got to walk my son to school in the morning. These kind of moments that we've previously not had, but we also were hyper aware of our mortality. I think a lot of people and a lot of people lost people very close to them in that space. And when we all came back from it for our industry, it was, we're going to work shorter days. We're going to make sure we give people space. We're going to make sure that, you know, we run this so that we're not wearing people out and making sure people stay healthy. And that lasted about a month. And then it was back to the grind and we got to get this done and everybody's moving and people losing it like (laughs) left and right. And you're watching your show go down, come back, go down, come back because too many people tested positive. And you've got to like have all that emotional energy every single time. I heard so many people say when I got my first COVID test results back, I didn't know that I was nervous until I got the results. Like we had to test multiple times a week. You're facing every day, like your health and your mortality. And it, it, I think it expanded the awareness and made us culturally in a different situation. And we can shoot more humane hours and we can do these things. And we know that we can, because we have, there are film sets that work that way. There are TV shows that work that way. I worked on a TV show that had actors that had restrictions and they refused to work more than eight hours a day. So guess what? We were done in 10 hours every day because the actors wouldn't work any more than that. And it was very humane, you know, was like, you're going home. You're going home within 10 hours. It can be done. And it's a very successful TV show, by the way. So So let me ask you now, Crystal, because we could talk, I think, hours about this. It's clear that there's so much and you brought up the pandemic and it seems that the industry went back to work sooner than most others. And I know there are a lot of precautions. You've seen some of it. My niece was a pandemic manager on a set for a while. And so that was a lot more work. Yes, for compliance. Exactly. But so 
What are the actual things that are being negotiated? Are you negotiating a standard that is fewer hours, more time off? You know, what what is it? Yeah, our main asks, and I can't get into specifics of them, obviously, since we are still technically negotiating, but our main asks are really regarding hours per day and how long we have between shifts and hours over the weekend, which is not a thing right now, right? There's no provision that tells people what a weekend has to be. So often we don't get one at all. So we're talking about working hours as an overarching sort of theme here. When we get into the nitty gritty of it, it's hours between the days, hours between the weeks, and Mm -hmm. hours that must be taken in the middle of the day is for rest. The living wage is a major piece for some of particularly my local. And that's just enough money that you can live in Los Angeles and not not have to find a second job on top of your 60 hours you're already working for this industry. Let me come in on that just because there's one thing that I think people assume that, well, the hours and the conditions are horrendous, but the compensation is great. And you've not mentioned about how streaming has affected, you know, the industry in many ways, especially because of the ramped up schedules, because there's content continually being introduced and has to, things have to be produced. But so what is this? Is it, you, you mentioned living wage. Is it the case that this happened because of new owners, new streaming, I don't know, Amazon and Netflix and the others? Or is it just that on the below the line, uh, workers have had to struggle for even that for decent compensation? Yeah, it's longstanding. This is something that has been just a part of our industry. There are certain positions that are historically female positions. They originated as sort of like more secretarial type work, um, administrative type work. And they've evolved over the years. That's a very small part of the job at this point, but they're still viewed and have historically been viewed as women's work. Mm -hmm. So of course, we're paid a lot less than other people. (laughs) It's part of, again, a, a whole culture shift and something that needs to happen. It's been a fight. It's been a worker's fight. It was a grassroots fight up until it's been brought to the table in negotiations and seriously negotiated for. To be clear, there are positions that make barely above what's minimum wage in Los Angeles. MIT has a calculator for living wage and what that costs in each city. And in Los Angeles, I looked for the category that I fall in, which is basically a single adult earner with dependents. And the living wage is $42 an hour or something like this on MIT, you know? And when you look at what minimum wage is, which is $15 an hour in Los Angeles County, our members, they contractually need to be paid small amount. There's a rate in the $16 an hour range and the $17 an hour range. This is the kind of money we're talking about for living in in Los Angeles. Again, I think that's a very important piece of this because it's dependent, right? What's a living wage depends on where you live. So that's a piece of the negotiations for those positions that are making this very, very low end of the scale wages. Uh, That's where the living wage piece comes in. As the president of the local, you're involved in the negotiations. You certainly know what the conditions of the workers are and what what needs to be won. But what's so amazing about this strike 
is that there was a 98% approval when the yeah. strike vote was taken and more than 90% of the people participated in the vote. Yeah. So you have this incredible unanimity, let's say, among your members that this is the way that they have to go. They have to flex their muscles as workers in order to demand better wages and living conditions. But let me ask you the other part of it, too, is that if you go on strike, that's going to involve a lot of community outreach and support. And is that something that, that is also being done? And are you feeling the kind of public sympathy and support? I'm definitely feeling it. Yes, it's work that would need to be done. I believe a lot in a lot of ways it's already there. And I think that speaks to how reasonable what's being requested is. I think people understand because a lot of people are in the same boat. And this is sort of, in my opinion, a bigger piece of a full workers movement that's sort of happening and permeating across the country. As we see, you know, John Deere workers are going out, Kellogg and like all these people are just kind of feeling empowered to stand up and fight back and say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to work this many hours without breaks. We're not going to work this many hours without just what, what I consider humane working conditions, taking into account that we aren't robots, we're people. And there are certain means that human people have that shouldn't be stymied by your work, really. And I do think that there's a lot of public support for this bigger movement in the world. And I do feel it. I have people stop me on the street. I wear union shirts all the time. Like I sort of have changed, shifted my wardrobe to get the conversation going and also to be available to people who don't understand, who don't work in the industry. Just a little billboard to say, if you have a question, you can ask me, you know, I've got the bug on the back of my shirt almost every day so that we can educate people if they have questions about it. And we want the public to understand that we understand that particularly in production cities, Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, they're big production cities that that depend on sort of the infrastructure of the movie industry at this point. And it's going to affect more than our community, more than the film and television community, if we go on strike. It's going to affect our broader communities. We are worried about it, are worried about the workers that aren't in the union, for example, production assistants who make truly minimum wage and work insane hours they don't have the privilege of a cushion. There's, there's not enough money in their paycheck to save money. We are worried about them. We are looking for ways to actively help and support them. We want to make sure that all of our IATSE people are taken care of. It's going to take a lot of community help if we strike. And if we're out for a long time, it's going to be hard. You know, Let me ask a final, a final question, yeah. uh, Crystal, because this is really important and maybe listeners don't know, but if this strike does go forward, it's going to be the first time that crew members are below the line have been on strike since World War II. What will be the impact if they do go on strike? And why are the industry heads being so hard-nosed on these issues? For your last question, we can only guess. Again, we look at it, we see very reasonable requests. We see very humane things on the table. You know, it's just humanity. It's like, what, why are we fighting about this? We don't kind of understand. That's my take on it. Obviously I can't, I can't speak to that. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. It's all uh, to me. I'm like, why would you even argue about this? I don't know. But I think that it does, 
you know, it does, it does affect, like I was saying, the broader community. And finally, because it's so unprecedented and hasn't happened in such a long time that obviously the conditions as you've laid them out are that important. And I just saw a headline as it prepares to strike IATSE warns, if the studios want to fight, they've poked the wrong bear. So I guess maybe that's a good way to pull this all together to say that this is, we can tell from your responses, you all know what's involved and what's going forward and have the will to fight. So I want to wish you the best of luck and, and finally just hear your final comments. I appreciate that. I mean, I do think that we, we do have the will. It's taken a long time and that's why we haven't done this in 120 something years, right? Is because the solidarity around issues, maybe it's taken this long to get there. I can't obviously speak for the entire history of the industry, but I look at it as, you know, the analogy about a frog in a boiling pot of water, right? Like we started with really good conditions. It was all wonderful. Slowly, slowly, they got chipped away until it just came we're now at the point where, again, we were faced with this horrific sort of time, right? We were faced with the pandemic and we were faced with everybody out of work and we survived it and we know we can survive it. And we get thrown back into a situation of, we're going to help you. We were worried about our industry ourselves. You know, we wanted to get back to work. So we did all these things and we all work together as a team with our employers We've seen that things can be pulled together. We can all work together. We can all make a production happen in a safe way. We can all make it happen in a humane way. And we need to do that all the time. So I think we just got to a breaking point where it was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Now we know what we can do. And now we're all united. And 98% of us who are speaking want to tell you that we're not going to do this anymore. And that's where it is. Crystal Hopkins, thank you so much for that. Best of luck. And we're certainly going to be following it. And perhaps we'll talk again in a few weeks and see where we are. But for now, I want to just let the listeners know I've been speaking with Crystal Hopkins. She's the president of IATSE Local 871. And that, uh, not just that local, but the entire union will be going on strike if the negotiations don't uh, produce some sort of, you know, satisfactory outcome before them. Thanks so much for joining us today, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep you updated. Thank you. Good luck. Have a good day. You too. And don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I am Susie Wiseman and extremely pleased to have Alex Press on the air with us for the very first time. We're going to be talking about what's being called Striketober or the new strike wave. Alex is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. She's also the host of Primer, which is a podcast about Amazon. We'll talk a little bit about that, hopefully. But her work has appeared in really good places. New York Times, Washington Post, The New Republic. Oh, I think there's a few more too. Vox, The Nation, M Plus One. And I'm really pleased to have you here, Alex, with us today to discuss these issues. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Susie. I'm, I'm happy to finally be on the show. 
Yeah, me too. So let's just begin with some of the things that are going on. So we have 10,000 John Deere workers on strike for the first time since 1986. Believe it or not, I covered it that time. And, wow. <laughs> and 2,000 nurses are on strike at Catholic Health Hospital in New York. 1,400 workers at Kellogg cereal plants across the country. 1,100 coal miners at Warrior Met in Alabama. We have 400 20 UFCW members at, this is the article that uh, Alex just did at Jacobin this week, which are bourbon workers in Kentucky at the Heaven Hill Distillery. And as the listeners know, 60,000 workers at IATSE will or might be on strike October 18th. Instacart workers have an October 18th work action. 24,000 workers at Kaiser Permanente are poised to walk out. And there's organizing drives at Amazon and now Starbucks. So the question is, how do we characterize all of this and explain this militancy? And Alex has been tracking these struggles and writing about them in Jacobin, where I said she's a staff writer. So we're going to I asked her here to get the big picture. So first, welcome, Alex. And maybe you could just begin by describing some of these, you know, astonishing statistics that I just laid out on the strikes and proposed strikes. Yeah. So definitely right now there is an uptick. And I think what's important is that it's in the private sector. Right. So usually we have more public sector strikes than private sector. You know, the public sector has about six times the unionization rate to the private sector. And COVID has really been a part of why this is happening. Right. So public sector workers actually have hardly struck at all this year. And part of that is that they've really been focused on bargaining around safe returns to work. They, a lot of them took contract extensions. So you sort of agreed to like a one year remove from when you would normally be negotiating expiring contracts, right? And so the pandemic has really affected that. And in fact, if you look at the numbers, those strikes are really down even compared to like last year or the year before. But the private sector, by contrast, is way up, right? And so you mentioned IATSE and then the Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers, who are spread across a number of unions and are definitely poised to strike um, a little bit down the line from now. So if those two strikes happen, then I would call it a strike wave for sure. And the other thing I would flag for people is that this is not just one part of the private sector where everyone is going on strike. These are actually very different types of work, right? We have film and TV workers. We have food production and bourbon workers, right? We have healthcare workers, and so on and so forth. Of course, the coal miners that you mentioned, now they're in, I think, month seven of a strike, which has really gone, I think, under the radar, given how long and how, you know, they were isolated. Um, Now there's an uptick and workers going on strike like those at John Deere say that they feel less isolated. But seven months ago, the story was very different. So those coal miners continue to be out there and demanding a fair contract. Um, So all of that together, I think, points to a very different moment, right, for workers. And it's really a good moment because it's one that's been long awaited and one that really, I think, bodes well for the drives that we know are ongoing but haven't yet uh, resulted in anything, especially at Amazon, where we saw somewhat of a defeat at Bessemer, although it was like losing a battle and not the war. And then we have all these other ones, including Kaiser. But I think, as I said, this is all really good news. And I wonder what it tells organized labor about what it should be doing for its part, because a lot of these workers are in unions. Some want to be in unions. And yet we see that there's 
public sympathy for a lot of the demands around a lot of the conditions that are driving people into strike. And so what I'm really hoping that you can tell us is a little bit about, you know, how this squares with organized labor. Yeah. So I actually, even though, of course, I want to praise the workers who are going out on strike, I actually find that another big set of data that we should talk about that kind of changes the tenor of what's going on is what's happening for workers who are not in unions, right? So it's great that workers are going on strike in increasing numbers, but it's actually a very dark picture if you look at the number of workers who are quitting their jobs, right? So it's really interesting. People are calling, you know, some publications are calling it the great resignation, right? So the Department of Labor just put out numbers on this. That's 4.3 million people in the United States quit their job in August, which is just about 3% of the workforce. It's like a record number, right? That's so many people. And so the way I think people should think about this is, you know, in this moment where workers have a little more leverage and are demanding more, if you have a union, you have a vehicle through which to fight. If you don't, you can ask your boss for more. You can ask your boss for a better schedule. And if your boss says no, you just quit and you try to find a better deal, right? But for so many people, you know, you're quitting your crappy job at Burger King. And what are your options? You're finding another crappy job. You know, you might then go work at Amazon, which pays better wages than fast food. But the job famously sucks. It's terrible. And so people are really hurting and they're navigating this challenge on their own, right? They've risked their health and that of their family. And that's, I think, what those numbers about quitting are speaking to or people switching industries, right? A lot of people in retail, hospitality and healthcare have been switching to entirely new fields of work because they've been exposed to extremely damaging and risky working conditions for the past now year and a half or so. So altogether, I think we see a picture of a working class in motion, but that looks very different depending on whether you're the select few percentage of workers who have a union through which to fight, or if you continue to be on your own and more alienated than ever, right? So that does say that there are certain demands on the organized labor movement to find those workers to not actually to start working with them and organizing new unions and otherwise preventing people from trying to navigate this landscape by themselves. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I actually put it in, you know, one of the questions to ask you about, because as you just said, we get labor economists and we get all kinds of pundits as well as politicians talking about the labor shortage and why there's a labor shortage. And of course, depending on your politics, it tells you, you can imagine what they say. So conservatives say it's because they were coddled during the pandemic and didn't feel the need to go out to work. But there's other things going on. And Krugman writes about it almost every other column these days is, is trying to explain what's going on. And of course, we're not hearing that much at least on that side from some of the reasons, but I'd like you to bring them out. It's if it isn't just conditions. And I just spoke with the president of Yatsu Local 871, and she talked about conditions in the film and television and theater industries that don't pertain that often elsewhere in just crazy amounts of hours and not livable, not sustainable for health and safety conditions. And yet that's what they've had to put up with. But there's, as you mentioned, these other issues. And so, you know, workers who are in the private sector have lost health care and they've lost unions and pensions are something that their grandparents might have had, but they have no hope of ever getting. And so, you know, I'm really glad that you brought this up, but I wonder like, how much you hear about issues like, well, we can't go back to work because we don't have anyone to take care of the kids now, or because I just can't go back to that rhythm of work. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the basic way to put it is that the pandemic has been pretty radicalizing for a lot of people, in, depending on what type of work they're doing. There was someone I know who said that they were in a DSA meeting during the pandemic and an EMT said, when you realize that your boss is willing to kill you, your relationship <laughs> to work changes. And I've been covering the film and TV workers fights for a couple months, actually. And so I've spoken to a lot of them. And similarly, you know, they were putting up with working up to 20 hour days turnaround times that put them right back on set within eight or nine or 10 hours of when they'd left. And they said that the couple months when much of the industry shut down during the early months of the pandemic gave them time to spend with family, to meet people, to do their hobbies, to develop a life right outside of work. And so when things immediately went back to just how they'd been before, and in fact, people in that industry say it's gotten worse, the hours, you know, they said, my priorities have changed. And the fact that there is this tighter labor market, you know, as much as we can sort of describe why that is for the people who are still in that labor market and working, they're realizing they do have more leverage. Right. And so that's why we're seeing these sorts of actions. But one of the things that we've seen over the last period, and it's a long time, is union density has gone down. You just mentioned that we had a public sector strike wave in 2018 prior to the pandemic, where teachers you know, went on strike. And even in right-to-work states, we saw wildcat strikes. And so that was all really good, but it wasn't in the private sector. And now we're seeing the private sector side of it, which is excellent. And I mentioned already all the things that private sector workers often do not have, which is healthcare benefits or very low pay, no pensions and all the rest of it. But now because of the pandemic and the things that you said, there is a, a need for more childcare. Women have really been hurt throughout this. They're, they've been the ones to stay home t- t- taking care of the kids. And, you know, you can have higher wages, but you're not going to go back to work if you have nowhere to put the kids that you can afford. You know, there's been this explosion in rents. And so affordable housing and climate issues are now very much part of labor movement issues. And I guess one of the things that I wanted to say is because union density is low, but the strike militancy is high, how does that compute? And do you see it as union membership in a society that is just characterized by grotesque inequality that continually grows as just another benefit for the lucky few. And if that's the case, what should organized labor be doing? Right. I mean, obviously, I'm a socialist. I don't think that it should be seen that way, right? I think that every worker needs a union. And there's, of course, it would take hours. We could have a whole conversation about why union density has decreased. But that said, right now, some of these fights, I think, can benefit everyone. And that union members, so again, we're talking about a lack of protections, right? And a lack of money, benefits, all these things. And if you have a union, you can fight for more. And that actually places demands that the whole working class shares at the front of the table, right? John Deere, for example, these strikers are raising issues that then other workers outside of that industry say, oh, I have this problem too. And so it can set the agenda in a way. So labor can go either way with this. I mean, organized labor in the past has said, you know, well, okay, fine. If we can't win universal healthcare, we'll build a private welfare state for our members. But the flip side of that is workers like in IATSE who are saying, you know, we are sick of having these horrible hours. And in fact, we think no one should have to deal with hours like this. In the New York Times, when I wrote about IATSE recently, you know, I talked about the fact that in other countries, in the EU, EU, for example, mandatory overtime is regulated. Employers cannot work their workers the way 
that IATSE workers are worked, the way that food production workers are worked, right? 80 hour weeks, crazy things like that. And so this is a way to actually forward demands that then can be taken up, I think, at a broader level. And you also have like, you know, as I heard from the members of IATSE, they have what they call the French conditions, which just means because in France, they refuse to do those kinds of long days and they have a more militant labor culture as well as unionization. And so it doesn't mean that they do eight hour days on film sets, but they'll do 10 hour days and they'll take a shorter lunch breaks in order to be able to go home at a decent time. Okay. That is, you know, specific, but what you're saying is absolutely right. What I really like about your reporting, Alex Press, is that it's very broad. You're not just focused on one industry. You're looking at the labor movement generally, both unionized and non-unionized. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but Is there a way to describe the kind of pockets of militancy that you're finding? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's sort of this tragic latency in amongst uh, non-union workers in general that's seen in those quit rates, right? So there is a militancy sort of infusing workers right now because of how poorly the pandemic was handled in the United States, the fact that people had very little support, were immensely alienated and so on. So there's that, right? So that's sort of isolated. That said, you know, even without a union contract, there are workers that are organizing anyway, you know, the sort of most high profile of those being Amazon workers. That's a workplace I write about all the time because it is going to be the workplace of the future. And so it's sort of like looking into a crystal ball when you're talking to workers at Amazon because their conditions end up becoming next year's conditions for other people. And so those workers are also, of course, like at the front of resisting those sort of working conditions, right? Not to overstate it, of course, because they have a long way to go before you see anything like a worker organization that's really sustainable at Amazon. But that said, that is one particular pocket of outrage and organization. I would also say healthcare workers. I mean, teachers have long for the past few years been one pocket of resistance, largely led by CTU as an inspiration, the Chicago Teachers Union. But, you know, it was always true that especially nurses were willing to wage fights in the United States over the past couple years. And now that's become even more true during the pandemic, right? And so we mentioned the fact that there may be 24,000 healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente going on strike soon. There's already 2,000 nurses in New York on strike. And we've seen even during the highest of stakes for a nurse, a global pandemic, we've Mm. seen nurses go on strike at hospitals. And the way they sort of explain that is that their working conditions are so bad that it's not just about them, but it's also about patient safety. So nurses are being overworked. Their ratios are going up. The hospitals won't staff them at a safe level. So I would say that's another one where just the frustration, once you start speaking to people who are doing those jobs, is just enormous. And I think not quite understood at the level that it's existing, right? I know a lot of people who work in hospitals and they say these nurses who, again, often are pretty conservative people. I'm in Western Pennsylvania. Many of them do not live in Pittsburgh who work in the Pittsburgh hospitals. So they're from sort of uh, traditionally conservative areas. And at the same time, they're talking about walkouts all the time because they're so overworked and frustrated. So I would say that's another one to keep an eye on. That's really interesting. I had Forgotten that you are in Pittsburgh, and that that was like the center of steel workers and steel organizing. And then there was this period when Pittsburgh was deindustrialized and in the doldrums, and then it just kind of built itself up as a healthcare center for Pennsylvania, right, or for Western Pennsylvania, and Definitely. beautiful city, I have to say. Yeah. And I just wondered if there's 
I, this is probably just a random question, but are there is there any sort of familial memory of militancy that gets passed on from, say, workers who were in steel, but whose kids might be in healthcare now? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this book. A good friend of mine, Gabe Winant, wrote The Next Shift, which is about Pittsburgh's transformation from the steel economy to the healthcare economy. And so he really goes into those linkages that, in fact, it's not just familial memory, but the rise of the healthcare industry in Pittsburgh is directly linked to the decline of steel and the need for retired and aging steel workers to get healthcare because their health was terrible. And so those are very linked. And I would say that anecdotally, definitely, there is this sort of at times almost like a caricature of in Pittsburgh where people say we're a labor town, even though we all know that we don't have unions at the level we used to. But that memory is there for sure. And also the steel workers are still present and are still waging new organizing campaigns. SEIU organizes a lot of the healthcare workers here, but United Steelworkers is also present. They're doing a lot of higher ed organizing here right now. And so those linkages are extremely real, and it's a pretty short timeline that we're talking about. So yeah, people's grandparents were in the steel mills. I was asking you about the pockets of militancy, and you went over all of these different areas. And as you were saying this, Alex Press, I was thinking about Amazon workers kind of branching. They're factory workers, but they're also drivers, and they're also, in a sense, like gig workers or working for an app. But they're not quite like that. But Amazon, as an employer, is in the vanguard of surveillance and gamification and not giving breaks and inhuman schedules and treating workers as robots, even though they are robots. And I just wondered, that is a less bright picture, even though we're seeing, certainly we saw a lot of app workers doing work actions over the last year or two, Lyft, Uber, Instacart now, Postmates, uh, DoorDashers, all having these separate actions. Do you see this as kind of fitting into this broader uptick in militancy? You know, I think it's an uptick in that people, you know, are finally fighting at Amazon, but I certainly don't think there's a rosy picture about these sort of quote unquote tech companies and app ride share companies, all of that. You know, the fact that they have to organize in this way is because they're systematically excluded from legally. It's hard for them to organize. They're considered independent contractors, many of them. At Amazon, the delivery drivers are not employed by Amazon, right? So they cannot actually fight against Amazon, you know, within the legal bounds of labor law. And also these workers then are sort of on their own and isolated from existing unions and organized labor, right? So it's inevitable that they're organizing the way they are, but it's also sort of tragic that they have to start from where they're starting. And that said, you know, I think Amazon, you mentioned it's all of these things. And I think, again, this I started this show about Amazon is that Amazon is everything, right? It actually wants to swallow the world and it's doing a great job at it. And it's almost comical that every type of Amazon worker from people who are doing micro work through Amazon Mechanical Turk to delivery drivers to Amazon warehouse workers to the pilots who fly Amazon's 83 jets to the high paid white collar workers in the Seattle office. All of them have complaints about the culture of Amazon being overwork and being cruel. Even the highly paid white collar workers at Amazon HQ obviously are not the priority, but they have filed complaints with the state about not having bathroom time. And so there is something that sort of, again, as has always been the case, the capitalist is you know the best organizer. He's bringing everyone under his uh, roof. <laughs> And they share these complaints. You've just said so much. So I just want to go back 
Alex. And that is, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking it's Amazon today. It was Walmart yesterday. And so far, they've both resisted unionization. But what we see, and especially saw it in Bessemer, that those workers who began the drive had before been unionized workers. So they had some experience of unions. It's not just the younger generation that has no experience of union that is bringing this in. And as you were also speaking, I was thinking, why aren't the Teamsters organizing the drivers, the Amazon drivers? And why aren't they jumping right in now to organize the app-based drivers? And we've seen this on the legal battle here in California with first passing a law, classifying these workers as workers, and then Prop 22 undoing that. And now there's further battles on this. This is a story that is yet to have, you know, the final chapter written, and it's very much part of a struggle. But I guess the question that I'm asking is that we're seeing not just uptick in militancy, but also, I think, a radicalization. And I, I want to check with you because you're doing a lot more talking to workers than I am. I'm doing a lot more reading, <laughs> but you're actually talking to people. So do you see that, that they're actually radicalizing politically as well? And then I want to ask you know another question about how the labor movement is responding. Yeah, I mean, I think in one sense, this makes me a very bad pundit in that I really don't like to pretend I know what the working class as a whole is doing or not doing. This is why I'm constantly just speaking to workers. So to say that the working class is radicalizing, I think would be hard to sort of make that argument. I do think that even just the Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020 did bring a political element to an existing sort of despair-based workplace radicalization that was starting, right? People, again, to be clear, because I'm a pessimist, I, I want us to be real about the state of workers in America. People are have nothing to lose. And that is why we're seeing people like at Amazon start organizing, right? So this is not just a rosy picture. This is actually from a sort of we've hit the bottom. And so then app-based workers start organizing. That said, I do think that especially the pandemic has also been a new layer that does politicize workers in the sense that they see that their employer, like I quoted the EMT, their employer prioritizes profit and the running smoothly of the business over workers' health and safety and that of their families. And we keep seeing it, right? John Deere just announced they're cutting off strikers' health care during the strike. They don't have to do that, but they're doing that. And that's been true at other workplaces as well, I believe. Heaven Hill, the bourbon distillery in Kentucky that I just wrote about, they also cut off workers' health care. And so these workers are saying, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, you're doing this to us. And that is not inherently going to radicalize anyone politically, but it certainly provides fertile ground for you know the left within the labor movement to connect the dots between one employer's exploitation and cruelty and the constellation or ecology of the capitalist system in which they're operating and which empowers them to do that, right? This is legal to basically all but ensure that your workers, some of them are going to die. And so that is, I think, a fertile ground for the left in the labor movement and beyond it to help draw those connections. So, yeah, I would say there's certainly some level of radicalization going on, but the left has a lot more to do to push that. You really just answered the last question I was going to ask you, but I wanted to go back because as we're seeing, literally, I think the whole society is moving to the left, except for, you know, that broad area that isn't. But conditions have gotten so much worse and the labor movement has been so decimated. And on the other hand, it was really dispiriting this week to see some labor leaders siding essentially with Sinema and Manchin and saying that the two bills that Biden is proposing that on infrastructure and let's call it human infrastructure and social programs that will make it possible for workers to have a better life are saying that these should be separated. And this is really dispiriting because what 
I would have expected in a labor movement that's down but needs to go up, that they would be asking their workers to stand with those other workers who are going out on strike and using resources, let's say, to help that case. And I just wondered how you see that. Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest with you. I haven't been super closely following what those leaders have said about the bills, mostly because I've been reporting on the IATSE stuff and other strikes. So I, I'm sorry to punt the specifics of that question. I do think at a general level right now, like, you know, without saying pretending that union leadership is the problem, right? Because at least my perspective is that it's actually capitalists are by far the problem. Um, and union leaders are sort of often a little more conservative than I would like them to be. But so without saying fully that it's the union leaders being cowards or something like that. I would say that some of these strikes are being motivated by the rank and file at a level that is very clear. So John Deere workers, for example, rejected contract after contract that was brought to them by UAW leadership, right? So that is a rank and file led strike that's happening. Um, And in fact, as part and parcel of the democracy vote that is happening within the UAW about whether there's going to be direct election of leaderships. Similarly, I would say that There are other strikes. I mean, IATSE, right? IATSE has never struck before at this level. Individual locals have before. But I can tell you, I've been speaking to IATSE members at the rank and file level for a few months now. And this is a rank and file fight. They are willing to fight and their leadership has seen that. And they've responded correctly by actually saying, "Okay, we'll take a strike authorization vote. Okay, we will have a strike deadline. And so, again, I think the dynamic there is very clear as far as what's going on. And it's really interesting because you had a 98% strike vote of the IOTC members, and that's across the country, especially in, you know, we're living in an industry town, as they call it, and it really will have a significant effect, not just on those workers, but on all of the other food and other sorts of services that help out in the film industry when there are shoots going on. So it's going to be really huge if this strike does start and yet you see on the other side, they're not really seeming to budge. And so if we can say that there's a mood, an uptick in militancy and even somewhat more radical demands or just once finally really expressing people's interests on the other side, they don't seem to be recognizing that. I think that's an important point, and that's actually fueling a lot of these strikes. So John Deere is another one. It's despite what sort of commentators and pundits are keep saying about, oh, inflation is going to go up because wages are going up. In fact, first of all, these wages have been stagnant for a long time. And these where the strikes are happening, often it's because the last contract included incredible concessions that workers agreed to and voted on. So these workers are trying to undo that, right? I mean, the IATSE workers have agreed, you know, they agreed 12 years ago in a contract with the new media properties that they would have worse pay and worse working conditions. And so a lot of these workers are taking this moment and saying, actually, we don't want, whether it's two-tier contracts or whatever else workers have agreed to in the past. They're, so they're really not pushing for radical demands as much as they're asking <laughs> to say, okay, let's, let's get back what we gave up. You know, John Deere, their response in this moment, it's not that workers were asking for a lot more. But John Deere instead said, actually, you're going to get less. So they took away, they said, no pensions for future hires at all for a very exhausting, difficult job where you're going to need a pension in healthcare after you retire from John Deere. So I think there is something to be said about capitalists not recognizing the moment that they're in. Um, And it's like they have a delay. They haven't seen the past two years. It somehow didn't they didn't recognize it. And it might be because their profits are better than ever. So they don't realize that other people are, in fact, actually suffering and that they're going to want more. But I think there is this immense sort of mismatch between what capital thinks workers will take and what has happened over the past years that has changed what workers are willing to agree to. 
Well, I guess this is the very last question, Alex Press, and I'm really pleased with everything that you've said so far. And that is, you know, you're a pessimist. I'm an optimist. That's kind of by the wayside. But you've been talking to workers who are fighting. Some of them have lost at Amazon Bessemer. But I wondered if they take those losses, if you've talked to them or others, if that's kind of turns them into despair or cynicism or just more fight. Yeah, I mean, I think at Amazon, it's very clear. I haven't spoken to a ton of people in Bessemer about their specifics, their feelings about that loss. Some of them that led that fight are very clear that that was just the first round. But that said, you know, there's I got this very funny email from one Amazon warehouse worker who I stay in touch with a bunch of them around the country and, you know, in Canada and around the world. And this one, they emailed me maybe the day after the vote came in in Bessemer. And he just emailed me about something totally unrelated to that. He had a question that he wanted answered if I had that information so he could share it with his coworkers. And I noticed that he didn't bring up the Bessemer thing at all. And so I mentioned it in the response. I said, hey, by the way, like, are your coworkers talking about that loss? Are you talking about it? And he just said, why would I want to talk about that? We have work to do. And we understand that, like, this is going to be a very long fight. So I think a lot of people know what they're getting themselves into when we talk about organizing Amazon. Um, Workers are not naive. They are not, you know, convinced that it's easy to win a union election in the United States in 2020, 2021. And so I would say, of course, some people are going to take that loss as really demoralizing. But I actually think more people who were just observing that election from the outside, reading the news, probably were more demoralized than the people who actually are fighting inside the warehouses, who it's no surprise to them what they were up against. And so people are still fighting. You know, the organizations that existed are still doing their best to grow. The article is U.S. Workers Are in a Militant Mood, and it's at jacobinmag.com. And you can find it online. You can look at all of Alex Press's labor reporting and articles at Jacobin. Just do a Google search. I think it's faster than a Jacobin search. But I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And tune into Alex's podcast, which is called Primer. And it's literally about Amazon. And her work appears everywhere else as, as well as Jacobin. But you can find her there. Thank you, Alex, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Susie. A lot of fun. Thanks. Yeah.